Uh, This morning, please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're going to pick up with verse 11, work our way down to verse 22. I want to, before I get into the scriptures, let me actually just begin with a word of prayer at the very start for a moment. Lord, thank you for the wonderful song set of praise we've heard that has focused our hearts and minds on all the wonderful things you've done for us, Lord Jesus, dying for our sins, rising again, giving us new hope. Thank you, Lord, that, that nothing, no power can defeat you and nor, nor can take away the salvation we have in you. Thank you for that. God, I ask now for the message that you would speak truth through me, that my words would be clear, that the message would be understandable. There's a lot of deep truths here today, Lord, and please just help all of our hearts and minds to grasp what you would have us to learn from this passage. And I want to take a moment, Lord, and pray for other pastors I've become acquainted with, I've come to know. I ask for pastors all over, Lord, that you would be with them as they're mounting their pulpits to preach your truth, your word. Would you give them grace and the words that they need to preach to their congregation? Save souls this morning, Lord, and restore souls that maybe have been wayward. Encourage those souls that need encouragement. Pray for my pastor friend Eric in Ohio. Please be with him in his church this morning. For Pastor Nathan at North Main, for Pastor Kyle at Emmanuel, that you would bless their services and their messages this morning as well. And for everyone else, Lord, that maybe couldn't be here, would you be with them in their situations and that you would bring them back safely to us? I pray for the Pence family, that you would give Brian and his family comfort today when they need it. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So this morning again, Hebrews chapter 7, start in verse 11. And try to quickly work our way through this. I I thought about breaking this up more, but I just didn't think I could. I I think we could all agree that people look for hope in life to one degree or another. And that's what the message is about this morning. It's about Jesus provides a better hope. A better hope. And by hope, most of the time, we mean a wish for things to be better. We say the word hope, and what we usually mean is, I hope my situation gets better. We're not sure, but we're, we're trying to think pleasant thoughts, positive thoughts that it could get better. And we hope our income may grow this year. We hope our jobs are safe. We hope our kids are healthy. And, and on and on it goes. I think you get the idea. The world as a society at large wrestles with looking for hope too, but not always in the right places, unfortunately. The fact that there are many different religions, I don't know if you've thought about this, but I thought the fact that there's many different religions out there is proof that people are searching for hope. They look for hope in their religion to give them some sort of comfort for their lives. They want to know that if there are gods or a god, they want to know how to know him or her or them and how to be right with them and to know that when they die, their soul is safe and secure. They look for significance to how their life could have meaning through their religion. We see that in society, even outside of religion, People look for hope in relationships through their family. They look for hope, especially in America. We're big on looking for hope in our political votes and our politicians or our forms of government. We think that if it turns out one way or another, then that'll bring us hope. But the very reason that we keep living on and press on in life is because we have hope in something. One of the reasons, unfortunately, some people commit suicide is because they've lost hope. They can no longer see a way to keep living on in their situation. They don't have any hope past it. So they make the ultimate choice to to end it. This passage in Hebrews for our message explores this idea of hope this morning. Can a person find real hope that satisfies their soul? 
Can a person find an answer to life's biggest questions, such as, is there a God? How can I know God if he does exist? How, how can I know that my soul is safe, satisfied, and secure? How can I know that if there is a heaven, I'll go there? This morning, we'll get an answer. The answer is clearly, yes, you, you can know all these things. A person can find real hope for their soul. They can know and have 100% assurance that they are known by God, they're made right with God, and that their soul is safe and secure in God's hands for all eternity. But where is this hope found? It's only found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus provides the only real hope that a person can bank on. Hebrews, this letter we've been in for weeks, it was written to Christians that probably had a very Jewish background. That's why there's so much Old Testament material. I believe it was probably a sermon written by a pastor to encourage his church. He wanted them to look beyond their life's troubles and their persecutions for being a Christian. He wanted to encourage them to press on in their faith, to keep fighting that good fight of faith and keep walking with the Lord. Don't give up or shrink back or hold back. Keep pressing on. He wanted them to grow in greater spiritual maturity. So his whole point of the letter is really this. Why should I keep pressing on in my faith and keep serving the Lord no matter what goes on down here in life? Because Jesus is greater. That's really just the answer. Greater than what? Anything, everything. He's just greater. So there's nothing greater, no higher being or thing you could put your hope and trust in. So no matter how difficult life gets here, don't quit. Press on in your walk with Jesus. So today, his point is going to help us see another reason why a person should keep focusing and following Jesus and trusting him. Because why does Jesus have greater worth for any devotion we could give anyone else? It's because Jesus provides a better hope for people who put their faith in him. Jesus' hope is not like earthly hope. His hope is certain and sure. It's not a maybe or possibility type hope. His hope is a promise you can consider already carried out without fail. It's as if it's already done. His hope he gives is a hope that a person can be adopted into God's family, saved from their sins, and their soul safe and secure for all eternity. So let's look at this better hope that Jesus brings this morning. First of all, let's start with this, the, the need for a better hope. Why, why was there a need for a better hope to begin with? Why did God feel the need to offer Jesus as a better hope to give to people? Well, the first reason the writer is going to show us in verses 11 through 12 is he's going to talk about the Old Testament again. The Old Testament priesthood, so the Old Testament priest, Aaron and Levi and all those guys, they could not make anyone perfect under their priesthood. And look with me in verses 11 and 12. He says, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So again, he starts with this idea that why does Jesus offer a better hope? Why was he needed? Why was Jesus even necessary? Because the Old Testament priesthood could not perfect anyone. It could not eternally save someone. So he sets up this case here that he's done in verses 1 through 10. That was last Sunday, so I won't rehash all of that. But he brought up this guy Melchizedek, and he's found in Genesis chapter 14. And his main point for bringing up Melchizedek was that his story is very mysterious, but his story has a great significant point for us today. There's a lot of details we don't know about this guy Melchizedek, but that's on purpose. 
We don't have a record of his family history. We don't know who his mom and dad were. We don't know when he was born. We don't know how long he lived. We don't know anything about the guy, and there's a reason for that. The reason is so that here in 2023, we could be talking about him today and understand more significance about what Jesus has done for us to save us from our souls. Melchizedek is a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. Hebrews wanted us to know about Melchizedek because the writer of this wants us to see that Melchizedek's priestly order, it's higher than Aaron's from the Old Testament, higher than the Levite priest. Remember, Abraham tithed to him that we saw last week. Now, a big point about how Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus is that Melchizedek's priesthood has no recorded beginning or ending. Therefore, one could say it's as if his priesthood never stopped. It still goes on today for all eternity. The Levite priests didn't do that. They were temporary. They grew old and they died. And then one of their sons had to take over. And then they grew old and they died. And on and on it goes. Their priesthood was temporary, which means it was limited in its impact and its effect. So the Old Testament priesthood, as I said, was limited. That's his point in verse 11. He says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Now the word perfection here can mean moral perfection. It also, though, has this tone of meaning more about this idea of being made complete or something is fulfilled. The idea was you had a goal or a purpose in mind and you reached it. You fulfilled, you completed your goal. Um, Again, it can mean both of those, moral perfection and completion. Let's kind of put them together and say, what does he mean by if the Old Testament priesthood could have perfected someone? Well, what he's getting at really is salvation. He's saying, look, if a person could have been made perfect, if they could have been made complete and eternally saved through the Old Testament priest, the Levitical priest, then that would have been possible. But he's being rhetorical and saying it wasn't possible. A person could not have been saved through the Old Testament priesthood alone. It was limited. If that were possible, then there would have been no need for Jesus to even come and die. It would have been pointless. So that means the reason Jesus had to come was all that stuff in the old, it had a purpose, but its purpose wasn't to save someone for all eternity. It was limited. Now, why is he picking on the Levite priest? They were very important. I want to make that clear. They did a great thing. Well, what's, what's the big deal? Why is he picking on them and saying, well, they were limited? Many Bibles will have a parenthesis here like mine does in verse 11. And in parentheses it says, for under it, that's the Old Testament priesthood, it says, for under it the people receive the law. So, He's trying to draw this distinction here to say under the Levite priest, Aaron and his sons and all that stuff in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the people of God, received the law of God. So in Exodus, God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the rest of the Old Covenant law. That's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all that stuff there. But what is really going on is God chose Aaron and his sons to be priests to mediate that law. They were like a a go-between, a referee between God and people. There was this gap. God is holy, people are sinful, and there's a gap. The priests stepped in and filled the gap. They, They were a bridge between God and people. But God set out a law, a covenant of how people were to relate to him, and the priest, they oversaw that. So they were very important. But he points out here that the Old Testament law and its priesthood that it mediated it was not able to grant eternal salvation, eternal perfection for someone. It was limited in what it could offer. So again, he asked this rhetorical question, if it were possible for the Levite priest of the Old Testament to make perfect 
why was there a need for another priest to come on the scene after Melchizedek? Again, his answer is, well, there was a need. Look at the end of verse 11. That's his point. He says at the very end of verse 11, what further need would there have been for another priest to come after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So he's saying, okay, if Aaron and his sons could have brought eternal lasting salvation through their law and what they mediated, there would have been no need for someone else to come on the scene outside of them after Melchizedek. It isn't Aaron's fault. It isn't the Levite priest's fault. It's how God set it up. God never intended for the Old Testament law to be the ultimate path to eternal salvation. He used it as a pathway, a foreshadowing for a period of time that was pointing to ultimate salvation he would accomplish through Jesus Christ. So that's why there was a need for another priest to come outside of Aaron, not like Aaron, had to come from Melchizedek. Aaron's Old Testament priesthood was limited in its ability. The Old Testament law could not provide eternal salvation. It begged for a greater fulfillment. So all this to say a new priest had to come on the scene that didn't come from Aaron's family. What was really needed was not just a new high priest, but a new law was needed. That's his point in verse 12. There was a need for a new law now. He says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. When you change the order of the priesthood, you also ultimately change the entire law. Why is that? Because priests exist to mediate or be a bridge between God and people, and there's the law bridging the two together, and the priests represent and mediate that law. Well, he says, okay, if you change the priesthood, then by necessity you change the whole law. You bring in something new, something new altogether. So if you change that priesthood, you're changing everything, is his point is what he's saying. Now this is amazing to me how God was setting the stage for Jesus, and he was preparing the way thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. Because the author of Hebrews says this is why Jesus came to earth, to be a priest of a different sort to bring a new law, a better law. God did not send a Savior who could also be priest like Aaron. No, he sent a Savior to come after the order of Melchizedek outside of Aaron, so he could bring about a new law, a better law, to save people for all eternity. The Old Testament priesthood could not make a person perfect. Its law that it mediated could not save someone. It was meant to be sort of a chapter in a bigger book of salvation, leading and pointing people to God's ultimate salvation in the Messiah, Jesus. Now, all of that, we can now talk about Jesus. Here's, here's where this is going to go. So he builds this case now and says, let's talk about Jesus. What does he have to do with any of this? Well, Jesus is the one that provides a better hope. How can Jesus provide this better hope beyond what Aaron and the Old Testament could give people? Jesus is a high priest, and he brings a better hope because his priestly order brings in a better law, a better covenant. But how does Jesus do this? Or let's just ask this, what difference does any of this make? How does this affect my life? Well, look at verses 13 through 17 is his next section now. And his point is this, Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's. Aaron was appointed by God to be the first high priest, and his sons carried on the work after he died. But the sons of Levi from the tribe of Levi, they, they were also priests and ministers in the tabernacle and the temple, and they had the furniture they took care of. So they were either a priest like Aaron, or they supported the work of the priest. But you had to be from the tribe of Levi to be eligible to do that. You didn't earn this. You didn't go to college or get a degree for it. You got it by your birthright. If you were from the, tr the tribe of Levi, 
you were eligible to serve in the holy things. Then if you're from the family of Aaron, you're eligible to be a priest. It was your birthright. So Jesus, though, is not a priest because of Aaron. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. He's talking about Jesus. He says, From which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses never talked about anyone being a priest. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. He's from the lineage of David, not Aaron. So then there's this sort of weird question then one would have to ask, Jesus isn't eligible to be a priest then. How can he say he's our priest? Because by definition from the Old Testament law, Jesus is not eligible to be a priest. And yet his whole point is Jesus is our great priest. Well, he says, okay, because Jesus comes from outside of Levi, outside of Aaron's family, he gets his priestly right from somewhere else, not from Levi and Aaron. He doesn't get his priesthood because of his birthright. He gets his priesthood from somewhere else, somewhere higher than where Aaron and Levi got it. Jesus is priest forever based on his indestructible life. That's what he wants us to see. Jesus isn't priest because he's from Levi. No, he's outside of that. Well, how is he priest? He comes after Melchizedek and he bears an indestructible life like we can say Melchizedek had. In verses 15 and 16, he says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So now he pulls together why he spent all those verses talking to us about this guy Melchizedek. Why does that guy matter? He says, okay, Melchizedek's story is used figuratively here. He doesn't mean it literally. Melchizedek died at some point. But he says, we don't have that recorded, so let me use that to tell a story in a figurative way about Christ. So he says, one could say in a sense, it's as if Melchizedek's priesthood never stopped because we don't have his death recorded. It goes on forever and ever. It's as if his life was indestructible. It never stopped. Melchizedek did not get his priestly status because of some physical requirement he met of the law, like Aaron and them did. He's making this case that Melchizedek was not a priest like Aaron because he got his priesthood from God directly, not because of his family background. So he was appointed a priest directly by God, and his priesthood carries on because his death is not recorded. So one could say it's as if Melchizedek had an indestructible life. Indestructible means endless, perpetual. It cannot be brought to an end. Now what he does here is he quotes from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. If you look at verse 17, he says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's story foreshadows that one would come as a priest to God after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. This means whoever this priest is to come after Melchizedek would have a higher order of priesthood. He would be appointed directly by God and not get his priesthood because of his family tree. He would also carry on forever as a priest because his life would be indestructible. That's why he says in verse 17 that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where hopefully it gets more interesting. Why does he quote from Psalm 110, verse 4? I want to take you to Psalm chapter 110. It's one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Psalm chapter 110, 
was written by David. And it was David sort of seeing through the Holy Spirit God having a conversation with another figure who's also considered divine. So we worship one God, but yet there's as if there's two different figures, both equally God. And David records this conversation. Look at Psalm 110. It'll be on your screen too. He says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. For the, here's the quote from verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now what makes psalm, this psalm so fascinating is simply this. It, it's who David says is talking to the other person. Look at Psalm 110 verse 1 again. He says, the Lord, so we have this person called Lord. The Lord says to another figure also called Lord. You have two lords here. The Lord says to my Lord, and then he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, what's going on here? The first word, Lord, is different in Hebrew than the second word, Lord. The first word, Lord, we would call the covenant special name. Sometimes we call it Yahweh. So he's saying Yahweh says to, and the second word is Adonai. So you have two figures. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So two different figures, both divine, both God, yet separate, one talking to the other. And David here says, Yahweh says to Adonai, this is what I'll do for you. I will conquer your enemies, make them your footstool. Your people will serve you when you take over as king. In verse 4, Yahweh was saying to Adonai, you, Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is, it's fascinating to me because David sees all of this through the Holy Spirit What's going on is God the Father is talking to God the Son. Yahweh talking to Adonai, the Father to the Son. God the Father says to God the Son, I'll make your enemies your footstool and you will be declared priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How do we know this is Jesus? There's several places. Let me just show you one. Jesus himself said so. Jesus read Psalm 110 and said, that's me. He's talking about me. In Matthew 22, Jesus said this, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said to them, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, duh, everybody knows that who knows the Old Testament. The Messiah is the son of David. He comes from David's family. But look at verse 43. Jesus said, okay, well, well here's, here's a pop quiz for you. If the Messiah is David's son, meaning he comes after David, chronologically, how is it, though, that David, verse 43, how is it then that David, through the Spirit or in the Spirit, could call him Lord? So if the Messiah is just an offspring of David, how is it that David, though, before his offspring is born, a thousand years later, whenever it was, how could David sort of peer into heaven and say, I see my Lord at the right hand of God? And yet Jesus said, but... That Lord he saw 
is the Messiah who come down through the Virgin Mary later on. Verse, and, he, and Jesus quotes this psalm here in verse 44. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So verse 45, he asks him this stumbling question. If David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah also be his son? And look what it says. No one was able to answer Jesus a word. He stumped them. And from that day on, it says they didn't dare ask him a question. Jesus' point was to say to these people, look, you're missing the picture here. The Old Testament was pointing to me. And David saw that. In Psalm 110, he saw the father talking to the son and said, son, you're, you're going to be priest forever. You're going to bring eternal salvation to my people. So Jesus tried to show them that even David could see this. Now, Jesus said in several places he's, he's the son of God. So that's how I'm saying we know this was talking about the Christ here in Psalm chapter 110. So Jesus provides an eternally better hope of salvation than Aaron and his people could because he's a priest of a higher order. Jesus offers a better hope because he has a better priesthood. So Jesus' as priest offers a better hope. That's his next point in verse 18. He says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. Let me stop there. So I've been saying this whole time that we're talking about a better hope. A better hope. What makes the hope Jesus offers so much better? Well, here's what it does. It completes or it perfects the Old Testament hope in what it lacked. His hope is complete, perfect, and eternal. It doesn't lack anything. That's the main point I want you to see this morning out of everything we're saying. And it's this, Jesus' hope completes that Old Testament hope. And let me pick up again in verse 18. He says, on the one hand, you have a former commandment being set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, the former commandment he's talking about is the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant. When Jesus was appointed high priest after the order of Melchizedek, God was setting aside the Old Testament law to bring in the new. Now, the word setting aside means basically an annulment. You, you sort of do away with it. You don't regard it as valid any longer. In fact, the Christian Standard Bible translation calls it an annulment. God annulled the Old Covenant, annulled the Old Law so that Jesus could bring in a new one. Jesus did not come, this is something to think about, Jesus did not come to carry on the Old Testament law. He didn't come to enhance the Old Covenant. He came to bring in a completely new thing. So he fulfilled it, but he brought in a new. He came to perfect and complete the limited hope offered by the Old Law. Now he calls here kind of some harsh words. He says that Old Testament stuff was weak and useless. But here's what he means by that. The word weak just means it had limitations on it. It was limited in its capacity to save people for all eternity. It wasn't meant for that. And then he says the word useless. That word could better be translated unprofitable. It, it didn't give the advantage that people really needed. So it had some limitations. Verse 19, look at the, the phrase I've underlined. He says, for the law could make nothing perfect. So the Old Testament law had a place, but it wasn't meant for eternal salvation. And then he says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now he's not bashing the Old Testament. That's not his point. He's trying to show us the Old Testament law was never meant to save someone from their sins. It had limitations. It was weak and useless to save someone for all eternity. Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfills it and completes it and then brings a more perfect, better hope to offer people for salvation. Now, here's the question I would be asking 
And I did, so we'll talk about it. Why would God give that Old Testament law in the first place if it was limited? Why go through it at all if it can't save someone from all eternity? What God was doing is he unveiled his plan of eternal salvation in phases throughout the Bible. He did it in sort of sections with a big buildup to Jesus getting here. It's like it's one book, but it has many chapters. And each chapter builds to the next and the next until you get to the point of the whole book. It's kind of what what God was doing. God wanted to show people the seriousness of sin and their need for a Savior to come to redeem them from those sins. That was the point of the law. It was a preparation for salvation to come through the Messiah. Paul proves this and explains it in Galatians chapter 3. And I want to take you there to Galatians chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 19. But this is to answer the question, if the Old Testament law was limited in the priesthood, why did he do it at all? Paul says, well, it had a purpose. And what he does is he begins by making the point that Father Abraham, he was not saved by keeping the law. He was saved by faith, by his faith in God's promise to send the promised son that he would bless all families of the earth. He was made righteous by God through his faith. But then he asked, so then why did God do the law at all? Why the stuff in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? Why did we go through all of that? Why did he send Moses to do all of this stuff? Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3, starting verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions or sins. Until the offspring should come, that's the Messiah, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That was Moses. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? What Was the law contrary to God's grand plan to save people by faith? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, meaning salvation, then righteousness would have been by the law. If the law could have saved people, it would have. There would have been no need for Jesus and all this other stuff. But the fact that God carried on and sent the Messiah means the law had a place, but it wasn't to save people. He says in verse 22, here, here's why the law was important. The scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul says this sounds harsh, but here's what was going on with the Old Testament stuff. It sort of held people captive and showed them they were grave sinners. The law was meant to be a mirror showing you what you should be like, but what you can't be like. And then you cry out in despair, God, I can't do this. This is impossible. God says, I know. That's why I save you by grace. But the law was meant to show you the standard, what you should be like, how to please God. So it showed people the real severity of sin and their need for God's forgiveness. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be saved or justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So to simply say it a little more simply, hopefully, this is what all he was trying to say. The Old Testament law was given to teach people sin is real and so is judgment. Those laws were meant for someone to look at them and say, this is impossible standard to keep. I can't have any hope to be saved by keeping this. And God would step in with the grace and say, I know That's why I forgive people through faith and with my mercy. The law taught people they were sinners who could not work their way to salvation. That's when grace kicked in and the sinner was to look to the law, despair, but yet trust God for their salvation. 
So Paul says that was the law's purpose. It was never meant to save anyone. It was meant to be a type of school teacher. That's in verse 324. My translation says guardian. The law was our guardian. But the other word you could put there, Paul was saying the law was like a tutor. It was teaching people, preparing their hearts and minds for the Messiah to come when he would fulfill all of that. So when Christ came on the scene, he perfectly kept the law of God. That means Christ fulfilled its requirements when we couldn't. Then he died in our place on the cross, bearing the curse of the law. So Jesus did two things. He fulfilled the law's requirements that we fail to do. And when he died on the cross, he suffered its condemnation for, our, for us our, in our place. So the law of the Old Testament was given to prepare people for the coming of Christ. It was meant to teach people they need God's grace to be saved. They can't earn their salvation by keeping the law. Then when Jesus came, people were ready for him, or should have been ready, and receive him by faith as, the, as their law fulfiller and their curse bearer. Now back in Hebrews, so what's his point then with all of this? He's trying to say, look, the Old Testament law couldn't save anyone. It couldn't make anyone perfect. It showed people their need for a Savior. God set aside that Old Testament law, that Old Covenant, once Jesus came on the scene. That's verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But he says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope is introduced through Jesus Christ. He completes and perfects that Old Testament hope and offers people a better, perfect hope. Why is this hope better and more perfect? Because Jesus, what he does for someone when he came on the scene as a high priest, he provides direct access to God. He says that through this better hope, Jesus introduces to people, they can draw near to God, he says. Drawing near is a verb. It's a present active verb. That means you can do it. You can accomplish this action, and you're to do it presently every day. So he says, look, through Christ, you and I, it's as if we can go right to the throne room of God and speak to God directly. How can someone do this? Only through Jesus Christ. He says it's only through the hope that Jesus offers we can have this direct access to God. You could try to raise an issue to your governor, a congressperson in your district. You could try to reach the president, any king that's out there. You might, but the odds are you're never going to talk to them directly. You're going to talk to an aide, some assistant, if you get to talk to anyone at all. But imagine then trying to talk to the creator of all the universe. How little your odds would be to talk to that person if you can't even expect to talk to the president of the United States or your congressperson. But here's the thing. What he's saying is through Jesus, you can you can go directly to the throne of God and he hears you. We don't pray and our prayers are routed through some angel. You don't pray and your prayers are routed through a priest. You don't pray and they're routed through anyone at all. Through Jesus, you have a direct line to the Father. How? Because Jesus is God himself and he's our high priest and he's at the right hand of the Father mediating our salvation and pleading your case to the Father. So when you pray, it's heard directly by God. You have that direct access. You do not approach God through me as your pastor. You don't approach God through a priest, some organization. You approach God directly through Christ. And he takes you there. So here's the, the final big point to end all of this. How, is, how does Jesus provide a better hope? Because he guarantees a better covenant. Look at verses 20 through 22 now. 
He says, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Jesus was made a priest by God with an oath that God swore that he would be priest forever. The priests of the Old Testament, as we've already said, they were made priests mostly through birthright. Jesus was appointed directly by God the Father. And he swore an oath, the Father did, when he appointed him high priest, saying, this will never stop. Jesus is priest forever and ever and ever. It never ends. He never dies. His priesthood never stops. Which means the covenant he brings, the new law he brings, the benefits he brings for his people never stop. It's never limited. In verse 22, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. My translation says guarantor. Yours may say guarantee, but all this means is, I think the New King even says surety. I like that word too. It means that Jesus is the person who can ensure guaranteed success. Jesus provides security and certainty for this new covenant. Jesus does not die. He doesn't stop. He doesn't fade away like the Old Testament priest did. Therefore, his office as high priest carries on. He provides that direct access to God for his people forever, and he offers this better hope forever as well. So Jesus then is like a bank with infinite funding, and you start a new construction project or you want to start a business and you need funding. Jesus is like that bank that says, by our authority and our assets, I back up and guarantee this funding to you. He's like that bank that can never go broke, never fail, never collapse. He guarantees a perfect, better covenant, and it will never fail. Jesus ensures a better covenant for his people. The old covenant was external, mostly. People had to go to priests. They had to offer animal sacrifices. They had to engage in rituals. They had the law that was mostly external outside of them that they had to go hear about. But if you look at God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah, God told them, but one day I'll bring a new covenant through the Messiah. I want to read it to you real quick. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in them, within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, their sins, and I will remember them no more. Jesus says, I won't read it, but if you read in the Gospels at the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, My death brings in this new covenant. It's here. It's presently with us now. We're in it if you're a believer in Christ. This new covenant Jesus brought by his death and resurrection, it grants us a better hope. God said that this new covenant, the Spirit would be inside the heart of every believer. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. Usually only the prophets or a special king got the power of the Spirit. And then God says, yes, you need to read your Bibles and know it, but what's going to happen as you do it, it's as if it gets imprinted on your heart and in your mind. And you'll know from the heart how to serve the Lord. You don't have to go to some priest and bring animals. You don't do that anymore. Because Christ was the animal that died for us. Christ is our priest. So we don't go to anyone for these things. 
Our salvation then is complete, it's perfect, and it's guaranteed for all eternity because Jesus is this high priest forever, he says. I used to think it would be so cool to go back to the Old Testament days. I used to think, man, it'd be so cool to see the parting of the Red Sea, to see all that stuff God did through the prophets and all this Old Testament stuff. But after reading Hebrews, I've become more convinced. Were someone like King David be able to be here today, I think he would honestly say, no, 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 you don't understand. We wish we could be where you guys are today because you have this thing called the New Testament. We would, I think David would say, we would love to have seen that complete revelation of God, that fuller word from the Lord. We would love for every person to have had the Holy Spirit in them rather than just a few select people. We would love to have not had to bring all these animal sacrifices because God was our sacrifice for us. So I want to say this morning to end all of this then, if you're here and you're a Christian, understand this, there's no higher place to put your hope than in Jesus Christ. You, you've trusted him for your salvation if you're a child of God, then go a step further. Are you trusting Jesus with your daily needs, with your life on this earth too? He brings a better hope, not just for salvation, but for our lives, our daily walk with him. Whatever you might be facing, I don't know what situation you may be in that, that's bad or it stresses you, it troubles you. Whatever you're facing, know this, Jesus Christ is greater than that struggle. So give it to him, trust him. I pray you truly know Jesus as your eternal hope this morning. Hebrews says in verse 19 that we draw near to God, we get salvation from God only through Jesus Christ. So I want to make that clear this morning that everything I've said about Jesus providing a better hope, you do not get it automatically. Only certain people get it. Well, who gets it? Those who put their personal faith, their trust in Jesus as Savior and repent of their sins, and they're forgiven, then they're granted this hope. Those who are in Jesus are safe, secure, and given this hope for all eternity. Their soul is secure. They know no matter what goes on in this life, good or bad, their soul rests with God on high. And Jesus is their eternal source of salvation. I pray you know him as your Savior. If you don't, then why not today know him as your eternal hope, your lasting salvation? You can only draw near to God through Christ. Do you know Jesus in this way? Do you have the hope that he offers? And I'll come down. I want to pray. And after I do, Bruce then will be here. I would just want to give us a moment as they lead us in a song of invitation for us to reflect. If you're a believer, then dwell on these great promises we have from God that Jesus is our eternal hope. You have that no matter what. He's your greater priest. He brings your greater covenant. If you don't know him, then you need to. That's the only way to draw near to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Hebrews. It's very deep. It has so many mysteries to it. God, there's things I don't understand, but I, I believe that you gave us this book for a reason. We are to try to understand it. And I hope that in some way, Lord, we've all understood something greater about the, the excellency of Jesus and the salvation he brings. Thank you for sending Jesus and not just leaving us in that Old Testament law, but you fulfilled it in Christ. Lord, if someone is here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, would you convict them in a way that they cannot ignore that call, that they must be forgiven of their sins by placing their faith in Jesus? In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.